2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound minds, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that all who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. When I was in middle school, my dad gave me the book Catch-22, Joseph Heller. It was published in, I don't know, 1960 or something about a World War II uh, U.S. Uh, Army Air Force uh, B-25, I think, was what he flew, pilot over Europe. It's a fictional book, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. I've read it more than probably any other non-Christian book uh, in my life. I read it every year from the time my dad gave it to me all the way up through um, college. It was kind of an annual thing I did. So it's not a book that I would recommend necessarily, except to say this. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the phrase Catch-22 or the concept of it. But in the book, if, if you recall, what Catch-22 is, is a military rule that says that crazy people can't fly bombers over Europe on bombing runs. That if you're, if you're crazy, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. And of course, if you are sane, you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> And so here is the catch. All you have to do to get out of flying your bombing missions is go to the doctor and ask him to declare you crazy. And there, you're done. Except that anybody who asks to be declared crazy is by definition not crazy. And so you can ask the doctor to declare that you're insane so you don't have to fly your bombing missions, but now he's no longer allowed to declare you insane because what kind of sane person would want to get out of a bombing mission? <laughs> So therefore, Catch-22 says, only crazy people are flying the planes. <laughs> I mean, who would fly a plane like that? Looking at you, Tom Joyce. <laughs> only crazy people would do this. <laughs> you know what it takes to land one of those planes on an aircraft carrier? I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure only crazy people would do it. And so all you have to do to get out of it is to say, I think I'm crazy, I shouldn't do this. And then you're no longer allowed out of it because that's only a thing a sane person would say. That's some catch, that catch-22. That's the line that's repeated throughout the book. That's some catch, that catch-22. And it strikes me, again, I read this book long before I became a Christian, but it strikes me that Christians find ourselves in a bit of a catch-22. What kind of person would go out evangelizing? What kind of person would share his faith with somebody else? I mean, only a crazy person would evangelize. We have a message about God who became a man born in a, a, a stable forgotten by the world and became the most central person in human history. And the only way to be saved is by confessing faith that he was killed as a, as a traitor, but our sin was poured on him and that he was resurrected into newness of life. It's a message that the Bible itself says that people won't believe. The Bible says that non-Christians will hear the message of the gospel and it will sound like foolishness to them. They're not going to believe it. Moreover, they suppress the truth and they take out their animosity towards the gospel message on the people who are speaking it. We have a message that will be received by the world as foolishness. It'll be mocked, scoffed, labeled as discriminatory, backwards, and offensive. And yet, we're commanded to go into all the world and preach it. So from the natural man's perspective, there is zero good reason to evangelize. 
There's no reason to evangelize. I mean, it just brings you shame and harm and suffering and contempt and it makes people think you're weird and there is no good reason for you to do it. So, all you have to do to get out of evangelizing, all you have to do so that our Lord's commands that you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to get out of that command, all you have to do is renounce Christ and walk away from him. And then you're no longer under that command. But what kind of crazy person would walk away from Christ? (laughs) And so there you find yourself painted into your corner where the Bible commands you if you have affection for Christ to go into the world and share the gospel with others. It's something that no sane person would do. And yet, it's a command given to every single Christian. Christians are known for being passionate about evangelism. We evangelize differently than other religions in the world. You know, other religions in the world, it's not about making an intellectual or emotional convert to their their faith. It's more about getting people to imitate their, their sacraments or their pillars or their, their progression, the rituals they do, or even in, in more of the Americanized religions with the Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, it's kind of the evangelism is best left to professionals between these two hours of the day, knock on your door and here's the script kind of thing. It's very different than Christian evangelism. Christian evangelism is about persuasion. It's about getting people to actually confess their faith in Christ. It's not about getting them to to do some kind of rituals. It's about getting them to actually change their hearts and put their faith in Christ. And Christians are passionate about it. They're marked by it. Where the gospel expands from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the othermost parts of the world. And it doesn't expand through elections. It doesn't expand through referendums or through military movements. It expands one person at a time, one conversion at a time, one soul at a time. It expands baptism by baptism. You could say it this way. Christians are taking over the world one person at a time. And that's because we are passionate about evangelism. You could say, and as I titled this message this morning, that we're crazy about evangelism. Last week we looked at slavery evangelism. This week we're looking at crazy evangelism in 2 Corinthians Five. Let me give you an outline this morning. Here's four reasons Christians are crazy about evangelism. Four reasons Christians are crazy about evangelism. First, a caveat. In the context of 2 Corinthians here, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to be reconciled to Christ by being reconciled to Paul. In the context of 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, the Corinth church was one that was planted by Paul, pastored by Paul, handed off to others. Paul left. Over time, uh, people, other leaders had risen up in the church that said that Paul was a false teacher, that Paul was not of the Lord, that Paul was not an apostle, that they had authority that rivaled Paul. And so they begin to spread lies about Paul. They said that Paul was only in it for the money, that he couldn't preach his way out of a wet car- cardboard box. <laughs> They said that he wasn't even attractive to look at, that he was, wasn't a good speaker, that he wasn't stylish. They had all kinds of accusations they gave against him. And so they tried to turn the hearts of the church away from the Apostle Paul. But in so doing, they were turning their hearts away from Christ. And it's not a one-to-one correlation between the 2 Corinthians commands to be reconciled and our appeals to the world to evangelism. 2 Corinthians is about the Corinthians being reconciled to Paul. And there's some unique elements in here in that Paul was an apostle. And so you can't reject him without rejecting Christ. I've had people tell me before, and you may have heard this too. I've had people tell me, oh, you know, I like Jesus. I believe in what Jesus says. I'm a great fan of Jesus. I just can't stand Paul. (laughs) 
give me the Jesus of the Gospels, but I don't want to deal with, with Paul. I mean, Paul is anti-woman. He's got dogmatic views about family. He's so narrow-minded. I mean, I just cannot tolerate Paul. So I reject Paul, but I love Jesus. Well, the book of 2 Corinthians is written to explain to you, you can't do that. It's impossible. Paul is the ambassador sent by Christ. He is given to reconcile people to Christ through, through him. You can't reject Paul, but accept Christ. That's the point of the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, the truth is, there's not a huge difference between reconciled to Christ and reconciled to Paul because of Paul's apostolic nature and because there wasn't a lot of daylight between the, the two's message. The message that Paul preaches is the message that Christ preached. And that's why I think it is appropriate for us to look at 2 Corinthians 5 through the lens of evangelism. Because ideally, there shouldn't be a lot of daylight between your life and the life of Christ. Amen? I mean, ideally, your life should be striving to, to close the gap as much as possible. Ideally, in your life, if somebody's going to reject you, it should be because of your Christianity and they're rejecting Christ. And if somebody's going to accept you, it should be because they appreciate and accept the things that Christ appreciates in you, the Christ-like features of your life. That should be your goal. Nevertheless, just understand the back of your mind, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation here between how Paul does this and how we do it. But I'm not going to give you that footnote every week through the rest of Advent as we look at 2 Corinthians 5. This, this footnote covers the next three weeks of sermons, okay? Just remember it, and let's move on. <laughs> Four reasons Christians are crazy about evangelism. The first is because we fear the Lord. We have the fear of the Lord in us. That's where Paul begins in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Uh, unbelievers should have a fear of the Lord. They, they're commanded to. They often don't. And that's a fear of, of judgment, a fear of entering in the presence of someone holy who will condemn you. That's different than a believer's fear in the Lord. A believer's fear of God is a fear that's rooted in, in hope and trust. We fear God because we trust him. If you remember your, your school days, uh, perhaps you remember a teacher that you feared because he was erratic and he didn't make sense and he didn't, you didn't know if your grades would be fair or not. And so you had a fear of that kind of teacher. Perhaps was too strong of a disciplinarian and wasn't a fair grader and so you had a fear of him. Maybe you can think of a different teacher who you respected, who was revered, who had such a mastery of his content and his subjects that you, you never wanted to cross him. You had to trust in him. You were afraid of what he would do with your assignments because you knew that his grades would be right and accurate and, and, and just. That's the kind of fear that believers should have for the Lord. That we, we fear standing before him for judgment, not because we fear being condemned, but because we know he's going to give a true accounting. That's certainly the fear Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, the knowing here, the fear of the Lord here, is clearly a reference to verse 10. I don't want to spend too much time in verse 10, but notice what he says in verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the word bema seat, the bema seat of Christ, where every believer will stand before a judgment seat where Christ will reward us for the deeds done in the flesh, both good, and it says uh, bad here in the NAS, but the word is, is phalon, emptiness. It's an athletic metaphor. The Corinthians had these, these, uh, these games where people would run the marathons or do the events, and they would stand before the judges to receive their, their they didn't put on medals, they put on wreaths. They'd stand before the judges to receive their crown or their wreath. And there would be the, the medal stands like we have, you know, first, second, third kind of stands. And the, those who finished in those positions would stand there before the judges and receive their wreath. The other athletes would stand in a circle around and the crowd would be there watching. 
That's the image Paul uses for us when we die. We're not going to stand before God for judgment between heaven and hell because our sins have been nailed to the cross with Christ. Jesus has paid for our sins. But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for how we lived our life, to receive benefits and blessings from him, to receive rewards is the word he uses here, to be recompensed is what the New American Standard says, but it's the idea of rewards for things you've done in your life. Good, and then the next word is fallen, emptiness. So good things will bring you good rewards. Bad things are crucified with Christ. You're not judged for those, but the emptiness, the meaningless things in your life are just nothing. You don't get rewarded for them. It's not a contrast between reward and punishment any more than the fourth place runner in the marathon is punished for finishing fourth. No, in fact, he's probably cheering for those who finished. It's not as if you take fourth, you're taken out and beaten or something like that. So the image here is that you live your Christian life. You die and you stand before God and God rewards you for how you lived. And Paul says, knowing that, knowing that it produces a godly fear in him, knowing that fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul makes his effort to persuade others. Persuasion is kind of a lost art. Persuasion is just a concept that means that in the Greek word, it's, it's this idea there's an item there, an object there, and you're seeing it from one perspective. Somebody else is seeing it from the other perspective. And you have to talk that person into your point of view. Now, in analogy that I thought of earlier from the side where you guys are, this looks like it's one piano right here. But if you're from my perspective, very clearly it's two pianos. There's two keyboards. You see both of them. But from your perspective, that's harder to see. And so the art of persuasion would be for me to convince you that there are indeed two pianos here. And, and so I want to use winsome words. I want to describe it to you in such a way that it gets you to come. I can even invite you to come up here up the stairs. And not now or security will get you, but... You know, come over here and, and look at the, and see it from my perspective. That's the, the science and art of persuasion, of persuasion. And that's what Paul says, because he fears the Lord. He wants to persuade people. This is a good thing he's doing. He knows God will reward him for his life. And so he wants to invest his money and his time into persuasion, He wants to convince other people to see Christ like he sees Christ, to see Christ as as beautiful as as Paul sees Christ, to cherish Christ as much as Paul cherishes Christ. That's what he wants to do. And so he uses his money for this. He uses his time for this. He uses his friendships for this, his relationships for this. He's building his life around persuading people to see Christ from the right side, to see Jesus like God sees Jesus. And this isn't something new. And Paul, I mean, Jesus himself says this. In Luke 16, Jesus tells what's known as the parable of the dishonest steward. And if you remember the story, it was a manager of a, a large estate who was dishonest and he was getting fired. And so his last day in the office, he tried to settle all the accounts. And he'd call, it'd be like you getting a phone call and it's the bank manager. Or, you know, you bank over at Wells Fargo and the bank manager calls you and says, yeah, I'm the branch manager and this is the last day and I want to get this car off this car loan off my books, you owe 20 grand, make it 10. Pay 10 right now and it's off the books and everybody wins. You would think, sweet. <laughs> sweet, I just saved $10,000. Well, that guy's going to get fired, of course. And then Jesus says he's going to come out into the world. And that dishonest manager who's now been fired is going to be out in the world. And he's going to have friends in the world, isn't he? I mean, you wouldn't hire him, I don't think. <laughs> but if he showed up at your business asking for a job, you'd say no. But you would certainly take him out to lunch, <laughs> 
You'd be his friend. This is Luke 16, verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus says, be like the dishonest manager. Not in his dishonesty, of course, but in his craftiness in thinking, this life is short. I've got one day left. Let me use what I have so that I have friends in my next life. That's how you imitate him. Use your money, not for this world, but so that you increase your reward in heaven. Use your friendships, not for this world, but so that you increase and multiply your friends in heaven. It was Jesus himself who said, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. This is how you do that. By investing in evangelism, by being persuasive towards unbelievers, by being crazy about evangelism, you store up for yourselves friends in heaven. Listen, please don't have friendships that are as fleeting as your life. Please don't have friendships that are just for here and the now. If your friendships are all about sports and kids and jobs and cars, they're earthly friendships and they perish with this life. So many of you are in the military or law enforcement and you're just here for a few years and then you you go out and everywhere, it's just that your life is a series of two-year stops, two years here and two years there. At the end of that, you might think, "Do do I have any friends? Your best friends are scattered all over the world. Your best friends are in this country and that country and they're scattered all around. And you think, what's, what's the point of all this? Mm. In a sense, that's not unique to military and law enforcement. That's, that's the Christian life because Christians are always going places. They're always going out in the mission field. They're always going to this church and that church. It's the way God, God made us. We're constantly expanding and moving. And the point is that there's a better way to have friends when your friendships are rooted in spiritual things. They become eternal friendships. They become eternal. You have friends for the here and now, but not just for the here and now. You're looking long term. We're all on these two-year assignments, aren't we? You got friends for two years here and you you make them, but you're really making them for glory. That's where the friendship really begins. This life will be over. The next life is where your friendships are really seen. And that's what Paul says here. I know the fear of the Lord, so I'm seeking to persuade other people to come to Christ is the implication, to come to him. How do you develop spiritual friendships? Well, in this instance, you find non-believers and you tell them about Christ and they get saved. And now you disciple them and that's the relationship that goes on into eternity. First, Christians are crazy about evangelism because we fear the Lord. Secondly, because we take pride in the heart. We take pride in the heart. He says, Paul in verse 11, we are made manifest to God and I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. Remember the Corinthians were saying Paul's in it for the money and the power. And Paul says, that's not true. What I am, God sees. God sees his heart. So he says, I don't need to commend myself to you. That's the start of verse verse 12. We're not again commending ourselves to you, which is kind of a funny line right there because, you know, he's going to go through all his shipwrecks in chapter 6 and in chapter 4. He just went through all he suffered for the Corinthians in 4, and then he's going to do it again in 6. I like in the middle, he says, I don't need to list these things off to you again. (laughs) I will in a few verses, but not right now. I don't need to commend myself to you because what I am, he says, God sees. And so does your conscience. My family, this week we talked about the conscience and I told told my girls, listen, you always have to listen to your conscience. The, The conscience after God, the conscience is the most faithful judge there is in this world. God is a is a perfect judge, but your conscience comes in a close second. Always listen to your conscience. And 
So we've had this conversation every night. Can I have a dessert? No. But dad, my conscience tells me I need a dessert. <laughs> All right. See how we're going to play this. <laughs> Does your conscience convict you of lying right now? <laughs> well, your conscience is never positive. It's always negative. Your conscience doesn't tell you to do things. Your conscience tells you not to do things. That's how conscience works. Your heart tells you to do things and do not listen to your heart. <laughs> but your conscience constrains you. Here Paul says, what I am is known to God. And it should be known to your consciences also. He says, don't believe the lies that I'm in it for the power and the money. Because God knows the truth. And even if, set that aside for a second, your conscience knows these lies aren't true. You know that Paul's not in it for the money. You know he's not in it for the power. He's just in it because he loves the people. And that's why in verse 12 he says, I don't want to commend myself to you again, but I want to give you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. So when those other people are walking around and saying, you know what, pastors are just in it for the money. Pastors are just in it for the power. Oh, I can't go to that church. That pastor's so boring. Look at how he, he dresses or look at his personality or look at this or look at that. They come with excuses. And Paul says, I don't need to defend myself, but I do want to give you just enough so that you can boast in me. Just enough so that you can answer those kind of foolish objections. Nobody leaves the church because the pastor is boring or he doesn't dress well or any of those other things. It comes down to a person's relationship with Christ. And that's Paul's point here. And he says, listen, the difference here, he creates this category distinction, and we'll talk all next week we'll be in this category distinction, but for now, he, he makes this distinction. There are those that see the appearance, and there are those that see the heart. People that don't know Christ focus on appearance. You know, in, in California, to use a stereotype, you judge somebody by what kind of car they drive. <laughs> Out here in D.C., you judge somebody by what kind of job they have, <laughs> what their title is, who they report to. Maybe what neighborhood they live in kind of thing. Paul says, that's the way the world judges. I don't want to even play that game. Instead, I want to live my life for God who judges the heart. God doesn't care about your externals, except as much as your externals show your heart. God cares about your heart. And so Paul says, I'm only, uh, I'm only in this for the heart. In other words, I don't care about what other people think about me. Make this as short as possible. Paul says, I don't care what other people think about me. That's the way the Pharisees are. The Pharisees care about perception. The Pharisees loved to give money to the synagogue as long as there was an audience to see it. You know, they built the receptacles so the, the money clangs as it goes in the receptacles. Everybody could see, you know. I've seen some people do that trick at Starbucks. They want to tip at Starbucks. They put their money up really high and it drops and cling in the box. Making my latte over there. You hear the money I put in? It was a penny, but man, it made a loud sound. That's the way the Pharisees gave. And if, if it doesn't make enough money in the receptacle, they can blast their trumpet and everybody can look. And Paul says, that's not me. I'm in it for the heart. I don't want the crowd. I want the heart. If you live your life like the scribes and Pharisees, if you live your life trying to have a good reputation with other people, let me tell you what you will not do. You will not evangelize. If you care what people think about you more than what the Lord thinks about you, you will not evangelize because evangelism does not make somebody think more highly of you. And Paul says, that's why God sees my heart. Paul, some people don't want to evangelize because they don't want to step on toes. Paul never met a pair of toes he wasn't afraid of stepping on. <laughs> He'll step on your toes right now. 
This is not to say that Christians should be obnoxious. Of course you shouldn't be obnoxious. There's nothing wrong with, listen to the sentence carefully, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be well thought of by others. As long as what they think well of you for is the same thing that Christ thinks well of you for. person says, I don't want to evangelize because I don't want people to think less of me. It's not thinking rightly. The person who says, I want to evangelize because I want God to think highly of me. I want to evangelize so that they think highly of me and how clear and loving I'm being. Well, that's what God calls you to do. You might share the gospel with somebody who rejects the gospel. And they might say, I don't believe what you're saying about Jesus, but I respect you for being clear and direct and for loving me enough to tell me the truth. Hey, that's, that's a win. You have a clean conscience in that situation. You can go about your life. That person thinks highly of you, not because they love Jesus, but because you were clear and loving towards them, even if they reject your message. That's, that's the kind of loss that Paul will take right there. It really is a win because they, they see the heart. This is why Christians are passionate about evangelism, because we care what God thinks. We want to discharge our duty. Acts 23, verse 1, when one of the Roman leaders is rejecting the gospel, Paul stands in front of him and says, listen, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God. I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God. I can stand before God and say, I've discharged my duty. My conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. And Paul can tell the Corinthians, my conscience is clear to you because I've presented the gospel to you. There's always that feeling when you have a neighbor who, who moves away or maybe a parent on your kid's soccer team or somebody who, who dies suddenly or, or gets separated in the world from you and you have this feeling of grief. You think, oh, did I share the gospel with them when I had the chance? Was I, did I discharge my duty? That's the picture of an unclean conscience. Imagine what, the, what a converse it is, what a freedom it has when somebody moves away or dies suddenly and you can look yourself in the mirror and you say, you know what? I was very faithful to explain the gospel to that person. I did it. I explained the gospel to them. Then you can do what Paul says in Acts 23. I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience. Well, Christians care. Crazy about evangelism because we have the fear of the Lord. We're crazy about evangelism because we, we are pursuing the heart and not the appearances. Thirdly, we're crazy about evangelism because we're out of our minds. We're out of our minds, verse 13. If we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. That phrase, beside yourself, is a powerful phrase. In the, in the Greek, it means literally outside of your head. <laughs> you know, I don't like the English translation, beside ourselves, because in English, we use that for grief. Like, oh, I'm beside myself with grief or I'm beside myself with anger. This is a different phrase. This phrase means you're out of your head. You're literally, in English, you might say that person's out of his mind. That's what this phrase is. They're outside of their cranium. Their cranium is, contains their brain and it's here. They're doing all their stuff over here. They didn't bring their brain with them. <laughs> That's an age-old accusation against Christians, isn't it? Oh, Christians are fun people. I like Christians make good neighbors. They're loving and they're, they're fun and, and all this. But man, I just wish they wouldn't talk so much about Jesus all the time. <laughs> the problem with Christians is they're always talking about Christ. Come on. Move on with yourself. Well, that's the accusation that was given against Paul. He was said, you're out of your mind. The Corinthians said he's out of his mind. Remember when he stood before uh, the Roman uh, king, Festus, who, who said, Paul, 
Much learning is making you, remember the phrase, mad. This is Acts 26, verse 24. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your minds. <laughs> There's this idea, Paul, because you're so caring about Jesus, you must have lost your head. Paul's response is, hey, I'm just trying to get you to become a Christian. <laughs> I want you to be just like me, plus these chains. That's where we find ourselves. What a great act. There's no better compliment to give a Christian than, hey, you are out of your mind because you're always talking about the Lord. That's what they told Jesus in John's gospel. The Pharisees surrounded Jesus and they said, hey, is it not right to say that you are Samaritan or that you have a demon? That's like the highest level uh, Pharisee insult right there. You're either Samaritan or you're demon possessed. I can't tell. They look the same to us. (laughs) That's what they told Jesus. You're either Samaritan or you're demonic. That's what they told Paul. You're out of your mind. And Paul says, listen, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the sake of God. If I sound like I'm talking crazy talk, it's because I'm speaking the gospel to you and you don't have ears to hear it. And if I'm in sound mind, he says in verse 13, it's for your benefit. Notice he's playing total depravity both ways. The, the second Corinthians says the gospel is foolishness to those who hear it. If they don't have circumcised hearts, the gospel sounds like crazy talk to them. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, notice that he's kind of being condescending to him. That means talking down to. He's, he's kind of being condescending to them. He's telling them. <laughs> Some of you will get that in five minutes. <laughs> Seven minutes. Paul's telling them, listen, if you hear the gospel and it doesn't make sense to you, that's because I'm speaking you the gospel truth. And if you hear the gospel and it does make sense to you, it's only because I'm lowering myself to your level. Either way, you need to listen to my truth. If you hear it, it's because God's opening your ears. If you don't hear it and it sounds like foolishness, it's because it is foolishness to you. When you have that approach to evangelism, you will be bold because you will take the comment, you're out of your mind, to be a compliment. And if somebody does listen to you, you say, great, it's for your benefit that you hear this. That was certainly Paul's approach. Well, Christians are crazy evangelists because we're out of our minds, because we care about the hearts and not the appearances. We're crazy evangelists because you have the fear of the Lord. Fourthly, we're crazy evangelists because we're controlled by love. And I want to spend most of our time, whatever time is left here, (laughs) for the love of Christ controls us. That word controls, in English, it's two words in Greek that are antonyms in English. In English, uh, restrained and compelled are, are antonyms, they're opposites. But in Greek, there's one word that covers both of those. It means you can't move freely, but you're being led. So I think the best analogy for this would be from a movie? Star Wars even? I think of the spaceship that gets stuck in the gravitational pull of the Death Star. It's being drawn towards it. The spaceship loses its volition. It can't, loses its locomotion. It can't move freely. It's trapped but it's being drawn towards the source. What Paul says here is the love of Christ controls, it controls is how it's translated in New American Standard. That has the restrained attitude or it compels is what the ESV says. It pushes you forward. But that's the idea. You're caught in this gravitational pull. What's the gravitational pull here that's caught the Christians? The love of Christ. The love of Christ is so strong that it's captured your hearts. It's captured your life. It's captured your arms and your mouth specifically. It controls your mouth. It controls your speech and it is pulling you towards the goal. And that goal here is evangelism. The love of Christ controls us, Paul says, having included this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Notice that Paul equates here the love of Christ with the death of Christ. 
common expression. Death of Christ here is even a metonym for his life, death, and resurrection. It's, you know, a part that stands in for the whole. In other words, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ encompasses his life, his death, his resurrection, the full package deal. And of course, his death would be highlighted. What a great example of his love, that God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Or as Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And so it's fitting for Paul to say that I know the love of Christ in that he died for us. He gave his life for us. You want to know the love of Christ? You look at the cross and you see it. This passage is riddled with uh, complicated theological words here. Included this, that one died for all, therefore all died. We've got three problems here. <laughs> what does the for mean? What does the all mean? And what does the die mean? And let's take them in, in order here. One died for Oh, and that word for, I'm telling you, this is the most important of those three issues. You have to understand the word for here. I'll even say it this. The word for is the most important word in the New Testament. This is the most important New Testament concept for you to understand. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I'll prove it to you in a second. But first, what does the word for mean? Well, it means it's a substitution. He died in the place of people. He died taking their place. He lived their life that they couldn't live. He lived their death that they couldn't die. He paid their penalty that they couldn't pay. He had the resurrection that they couldn't rise. That's what the four is. He did all of that in their place. It's a common New Testament phrase. Romans 5, 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the word for there. It's substitution. He takes our place. At the right time, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6, he died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, he died for us. It's this idea that he is in our place. Substitution. Even the word substitution is almost too limited, though. You think of a basketball game. A player gets three fouls in the first half. He's probably going to sub out. He goes to the bench. The substitute comes in and takes his place in the court. But the analogy breaks down because in basketball, the player who comes in doesn't take over the other player's fouls. The foul, guy with three fouls comes out. The new player doesn't come in and take on those three fouls on himself. That's what happens with Christ, though. He's our substitute. He comes in in our place and takes our sin on him. We've switched spots. We now have his life. And he now has our sin. Our death becomes his death. His death becomes our death. He died for us in our place. This is what Jesus said at the Last Supper. This is the blood of the covenant spilled for you. This is the bread of the covenant broken for you. The blood of the covenant poured out for many, he says. That's what it means. He's our representative. Listen to Isaiah 53. The most clear explanation of this in the whole scripture, I think, is Isaiah 53. I love that it's an Old Testament passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what it means that he died for us. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us Peace. That's what it means that he died for us, that our sins go on him. He was beaten, wounded, not by the Romans, but by God. And he brings us peace because we died with him. We have peace with him. By his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed. 
I said earlier, it's the most important New Testament concept. Well, here's the proof of that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. In other words, Paul says, I'm telling you what is the most important thing, the first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says it's the most important concept to the Corinthians, that Christ died for our sins. So what does the word for mean? It means that he died in our place. It means that he rose and we rise with him. It means that his life becomes ours and our sin becomes his and his resurrection becomes our resurrection and our death becomes his death. That's what the word for there means. There is one God, Paul says, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony in the proper time. The gospel can be preached to the world because there is no other mediator between God and man except Christ Jesus who gave his life for all. Now, second phrase here, four, we covered four. Secondly, all. And just in the back of your mind, understand the word all here is of less importance than the word for if we're ranking them, which I'm ranking them, less importance than the word for. But it's important because a lot of confusion comes from this word here. It's very easy to think that this, Paul is arguing for universalism here. There's no such thing as hell and that everybody is saved. Because if all here means every individual in the world that has ever lived, then certainly it means those who have died apart from Christ, and certainly it means those who have died in the Old Testament before Christ, and those who died before the... And what does the word all mean here? If it means every single human being ever, then you end up with Jesus dying a substitutionary death and bearing the sin and rising for the life of every person who's ever lived. And that's obviously not what the Bible teaches. And so I'm making it sound more complicated than it is because the rest of the sentence solves the riddle for us. <laughs> But let me give you a little suspense as we go through it. One died for all in the place of all. That phrase, one died for all, it's a phrase Paul uses a few other places, and it refers to Christ as the second Adam. That Adam died for everybody underneath him, which brings us all spiritual death. If Adam is the head of your family, then you are spiritually dead. We're born into sin and trespasses because Adam is the head of us. We're all in the image and likeness of Adam, and so we're spiritually dead. There is a second Adam, though. Christ becomes the second Adam. He's our second representative. He lives the life that Adam didn't live. He lives the life that we couldn't live. And he dies for all those who are underneath him. So Adam dies for all of his people. And that's a bad death that gives you spiritual death and separation from God. And Christ dies for all those who are underneath him, which gives you eternal life because your sins are forgiven. So this this is a category of all those who are underneath him. He died for all, therefore, and here's another complicated phrase, all died. What does that mean that all died? It's just a basic timeline level. How did you die if you are born 2,000 years after Jesus died? What does it mean that you died with Christ when he died before you were even born the first time? Well, again, it's another common New Testament phrase that Christ dies to bear our sins, and so that our identity is now wound up in him. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, notice the tie to Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. If every human dies in Adam, meaning you spiritually died with his sin, every human is spiritual, or every person under Christ is spiritually made alive with him. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If Christ is your head, you died on the cross with him, 
You live with him in life. The, your sins have been paid for. Your identity is drowned in the death of Christ. This is why we do baptisms. The person goes in the water and he goes under the water dying to his previous life. He And sometimes pastors even say that. Buried with Christ in his death, raised with Christ in this resurrection or newness of life. The church for a long time would give people new names at their baptism. And I love that practice. <laughs> I don't recommend it. It causes all kinds of legal problems, but it's an awesome picture, isn't it? That you have one name, the name your parents gave you, the name that Adam gave you, you could say it that way. And when you come up out of the water, you receive the new name that Christ gives you. That's the picture. That's what it means that you died with Christ. And because you died with Christ, you will also live with Christ. That's verse 15. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's why I said just finish the sentence. He says, the, the all there is those whom he did this on their behalf. He died for all and rose again on their behalf. He rises to offer us eternal life. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified. What is it? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the faith to the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself up for me. I've been crucified with Christ. My life is done. The old me is buried. Anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. I died with Christ. That old me is long gone. The new me is here because Jesus rose from the grave. Because he rose from the grave. That's the promise that we have when we come to faith in him. We die with him and we rise with him. He rises from the grave on our behalf. Now there's two, as I said, two, two headings here. All those who are under Adam are dead in their sins and trespasses because Adam, their head has brought them death. They died with Adam. And again, Adam didn't die physically the day he sinned. He died spiritually the day he sinned. God's word was true. He would die when he ate the fruit. That's the death that we inherit. We come in this world loving sin, running from God, spiritually dead because we come like Adam. There's a big canyon there, a big chasm. On the other side is a second head, Christ. And all who are under him have their sins forgiven. They have eternal life because they died with Christ. But Christ, unlike Adam, resurrected, amen? And so he offers life. If you're under Christ, you have eternal life because you died with him, which means you raised with him. Those under Adam, those under Christ. Between the two are a great gulf. Now, how do you go from one side to the other? How do you go from being under Adam to being under Christ? Will you appropriate the benefits of Christ's death through faith? You walk across the bridge through faith. You see Christ and you place your faith in him and you say, he died for me. And that confession of faith takes you across. The four being in my place. He died in my place. He rose so I can rise with him. And that moves you across the bridge. If you believe that, then you will be a passionate evangelist. How could you believe that and not evangelize? How could you look at a world where most people are under here and you see some people under here and you see the bridge? The bridge that is laid down with the love of Christ, the death of Christ, the cross that will take you from one side to the other. How can you see that 
and then not tell people to walk on it. That's what Paul means in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Because if he died for all, then all died in him. And if he lives, for those whom he died, he rose again on their behalf. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us eternal life through your death and resurrection. We could not have merited this life on our own. We did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to design this. We just receive it. So we're grateful. We're thankful for the admonishment to evangelize. Lord, we know that Christians are marked by being crazy about evangelism. Help us be crazy this week. Help when we reunite tonight or next Lord's Day. Give us stories of those who shared the gospel with in our absence. Pray that you'd be glorified through our church in this way. I pray for anyone who's here today that does not know you, who's never walked across that bridge. I pray this morning would be the day that they look at you and see you as their Savior, see you as their head, see you as the second Adam and say, I want to live for you because you rose for me. I pray that you would give them that faith this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.